You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net. And thanks for joining us. So it is great to see you this morning. Welcome once again, Grace Community Church family and friends. We are going to dive right into God's Word now, and as we prepare to do so, I have a question for you that kind of sets the table for where we're going to go this morning. Do you believe in miracles? So many years ago, 31 years ago actually, to be exact, I had one of those defining moment situations, one of those defining moment phone calls that I have never forgotten. I got this phone call from my girlfriend at the time, uh, Jamie. We were going to college and going to school in different states, so we were doing the long-distance dating thing. I got a phone call from her once a week, or I called her once a week, because that's all we could manage to do. And anyway, she called me, and the news she gave me at that time was just so um, life-changing. Because in this phone call, she said, Jay, my mom has cancer. She has uterine cancer. And we don't know how bad it is, but it's bad, and they have to do surgery. And so her mom went into surgery, and they removed her uterus and took as much of the cancer out as they could. They thought they had got it all. Until a year later, the cancer had spread to other parts of her body, and once again, she had to go into surgery again. And as she went into surgery and as they began to operate, they knew that there was a, a really large-sized mass of cancer in her small intestine. She could feel it. It was, it turns out, the size of a softball. And so they removed that and removed a significant portion of her intestine and then sewed her back up. The chief oncologist came out to the family. And as my father-in-law was to tell me in later years, he was white as a sheet. He was pale. And he was someone who the family and who we all knew. He was actually a Jesus follower. He actually went to our church, and he was the chief oncologist at Providence Medical Center. Anyway, he was the one who was performing the surgery. He came out pale, shaken, and said there was so much cancer that we couldn't even begin to get it all. So we removed what we could of Lee's intestine, and we removed a significant portion of it, sewed her back up, but there's nothing else we can do. She has two weeks to live. So with this news, the family begins to pray and they ask for prayer and the elders gather for prayer. And two weeks go by and she seems to be doing a little better. And so the oncologist orders another scan of her body and all of the cancer, all of it was malignant and now all of those tumors are benign. All of them. And she went to live on for another 31 years. She just went home to be with the Lord, as many of you know, this last January. The oncologist once again came out in all this and said, this is a class A miracle of God. In all my years of practice, I've never seen something like this ever happen. There aren't many Lee Vales out there, but this absolutely is a miracle of God. My friends, this morning, as we come to this next portion of the Gospel of Matthew, we are going to begin to see a series of healing miracles that Jesus will do. And when it comes to miracles, 
I'm an easy sell on that. I absolutely believe that God does miracles, not just from the incredible story of my mother-in-law, but other healing miracles that we've seen happen in our family or our extended family. And of course, the miracles that I've seen God perform in your lives as well. One of the many reasons I love being a pastor and I love being your pastor is I get a front row seat of seeing what God can do, of seeing God do the miraculous. So as we prepare to dive into this story, just a couple things that we need to keep in mind. The first is, whenever Jesus performed a miracle, there were reasons for that. It wasn't just to take care of the immediate problem at hand. It was to show, to prove that he really was the Messiah because that was what the Messiah was promised to do, was to bring healing. And so Jesus did that to authenticate, to prove that he was who he said he was. But he also did it to give us a picture of what the kingdom really should be all about and what it is all about. You see, in God's kingdom, when his kingdom fully comes, there will be no more disease, no more sickness, no more death, no more suffering, no more tears. So every time he performs a miracle, he shows us how life really should be. And finally, the miracles that we see that Jesus did are a pattern. They, they demonstrate this pattern of how he saves. He comes into ordinary people's lives like you and me, into ordinary situations, but does extraordinary things. And so that's what we're gonna begin to see. And that's what we especially see in this section that we're looking at here today. There's really three miracles. We're gonna focus in on one. But Jesus will come to a leper. He will come to a centurion's servant, or actually he will heal that servant from a distance and he will heal Peter's mother-in-law. And the commonality that runs through these three stories is these are the last people you would ever expect God to heal. One is a physical outcast, one is an ethnic outcast, and one is a social outcast, is marginalized. And yet, these are the very people who Jesus comes to to heal. So as we prepare to read this passage together and wrestle with it and look at it together, this is my question for you. Where are the miracles in this passage? Because there are many. And let me tack on one more question with that. So two questions. Where are the miracles here? But the second question, and I think the most important, what is the greatest miracle that we see in this story today? So if you have a Bible, take it out. Or if you have your phone, take that out. Or however you're watching this, if you have a way to pull up a Bible, do that. But this is Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13, and this is what this passage says. So when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? And the centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. I say to that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west, And will take their places at the feast with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness. 
where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. Now, what we need to remember, not only in this section, but in the chapters to come, the point really isn't even the miracles. The point is faith. All of these miracles point to the reality of faith. So let's begin to look at that together. Let's work our way back through this passage. It says that this centurion came to Jesus. Now this in and of itself is remarkable. And let me explain why. So my wife and I were on vacation this last week and a half. We just got back a couple of days ago. And one of the things I love to do on vacation is to read or to, to watch movies. And many of you know this about me from my years here at Grace with you, but I love World War II history. I'm a World War II history guy. I have a grandpa who served um, in the Navy for 30 years, served in World War II, Korea. But I really love World War II history. And I was watching this DVD that once again was walking through what happened when Nazi Germany began to occupy and take over Europe and how the Nazis were just brutal occupiers. They were ruthless. And it reminded me of the reality of this story. You see, Rome were, Romans, they were the occupiers of this culture and this country. And they were ruthless just like the Nazis were. They looked down on the Jews as somewhat subhuman, just like the Nazis did to those they conquered. And so all that being said, for a centurion to come to a Jewish rabbi and to ask for his help is miraculous in and of itself. The people who were observing this must have been astounded. A centurion would never do that. He would never come to a Jew or to a Jewish rabbi for that matter and ask them for help. And yet here's this centurion coming to Jesus. It, it really is remarkable. And so it goes on. He comes to him because his servant is paralyzed and suffering terribly. Now, again, we can look at this and kind of cynically say, well, of course he's coming to Jesus to get his servant fixed. Because, you know, having a servant back then or having a slave back then was like having a car with a flat tire. Jesus, you know, can you fix my car so it can get back to work? You know, fix the tire so it can get going and get doing what it needs to do. But that's not the vibe or flavor of this at all. The way this is written, the way this is described, this centurion genuinely cares about his servant. And we don't have time, and it's a whole nother sermon to talk about the differences between servants and slaves and what was going on in the culture at that time. But what is important for us to know is that servants oftentimes were treated as and regarded as family. They were a part of the family. They weren't just a tool to get work done. They were loved, cherished, valued family members. And that is the vibe of what we see in this story. This centurion genuinely cares about his servant, which once again is absolutely remarkable that this battle-hardened Roman soldier would care about anyone is remarkable, but that he would genuinely care about his servant enough to humble himself and come to Jesus and ask for him to possibly perform a miracle and heal him. This is miraculous once again in and of itself. And now we see how Jesus responds. And this is remarkable. Jesus offers to come and heal him. Now, once again, for Jesus, as a law-abiding, law-observing Jew, which he was, to come to a non-Jew's home would be to ceremonially defile himself. He would become ceremonially unclean. And for Jesus to be willing to offer this is 
is remarkable. It shows the depth of his willingness to truly help this centurion and his servant, who Jesus, by the way, has never met. And that is remarkable. But look at how the centurion replies, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. What an amazing, remarkable attitude. And scholars have wrestled with this as to what does this really mean? Because it could mean a couple things. Did he say that he doesn't deserve to have him come under his roof because he knows that Jesus will ceremonially um, become unclean if he comes to his house and so he doesn't want to put Jesus into that situation? Or is it that he has such profound respect for Jesus and such an awareness of his own brokenness that he doesn't feel like he deserves to have Jesus come to his house. Why do we have to choose between the two? Could it be some of both? Regardless, the attitude of the centurion, once again, is pretty miraculous. This is a man who is demonstrating to us that poverty of spirit, what it means to be poor in spirit in approaching God that Jesus talked about earlier in the Sermon on the Mount. This man clearly understands Jesus owes him nothing. He is entitled to nothing. And yet, he very humbly is asking Jesus to do the miraculous. And so, as the story goes, the centurion says, you just give the word, and my servant will be healed. And that also is a miraculous statement. We don't know how much this centurion understands about what faith is, But this is what we do know. He understands authority. Because you see, the centurion was part of the officer corps of the Roman Empire. In fact, centurions were the backbone of the Roman armed forces. They had command of a hundred people, a hundred men. And they had tremendous amount of responsibility and leadership that was expected from them. And when they asked you to do something, you did it. And it wasn't just because you feared and respected the centurion. It was because you feared and respected what stood behind him, the entire Roman Empire. If a centurion asked you to do something, Rome was asking you to do something, and you did it, or you suffered the consequences. This guy understood the power of authority. And we don't know how much he understood of who Jesus really was, but this is what he did understand, that somehow in some way Jesus represented the authority of God himself. And so therefore, all Jesus had to do was just give the word. He didn't even need to go to his house. And it was a remarkable, remarkable statement and attitude that this centurion demonstrated So we've been talking a lot about faith. So what is faith? And in its simplest form, we could define faith like this, that it's believing that whatever God says can be absolutely trusted. And this centurion, whether he knows it truly or not, is demonstrating and exampling faith in how he responds to Jesus. He truly believes that Jesus not only has the authority to do what he's asking of him, but that he will. It's a remarkable example of faith. 
We don't know how much the centurion understood who Jesus truly was. But it does beg the question, do you? Who is Jesus to you? Is he a great example, which he is, but he's more than that. Is he a great teacher? Yeah, he really is, but he claims to be more than that. Is he like a a life coach who gives good advice? Well, he's so much more than that as well. He's not just the divine advice giver. He's God. Jesus is God. He is the promised Messiah. He is the chosen one. He is the one who was promised to come and who has come and who will come again. But this begs the question when it comes to faith. Is he your God? Who is Jesus to you? That is the most important question you will ever answer in your entire life. Who is question? Who is God to you? And the amazing thing is, is that when you entrust yourself to this God, when you trust this God, then you become someone who also is trustworthy. Because we're made in his image, because the more you trust and know this God and experience him in your life, the more you will become a person who keeps your word and who is trustworthy. Because God is trustworthy. Because God always does what he says he will do. But back to our story. Jesus commends him for his incredible faith, his incredible trust. And this in itself is remarkable. I mean, we got to understand and appreciate this centurion is a Gentile. He is a non-Jew. He has, assumably, no Old Testament frame of reference for the Messiah. He doesn't know, probably, truly, who Jesus is. But again, this is what he does know. This guy does amazing things. This guy has amazing authority. And therefore, he chooses with what he knows to put his trust in him. And what does Jesus command here? Not the quantity of his faith, but the quality of his faith. You see, the object of our faith, the focus of our faith, absolutely matters. So Jesus does this incredible healing, not in proportion to the centurion's faith, not because it was caused by the centurion's faith, but in response to the centurion's faith in him, which becomes very practical for us. Saving faith involves remembering that the Lord is the foundation of our faith. Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 in calling us to build our lives on the foundation of faith in him. So let's take this for a test drive. What is the foundation of your faith this morning? I think for many of us, Our faith has been tested this year in more ways than we could have ever imagined. We've had COVID and still do. We've had racial tensions. We've had riots. We've had wildfires. We've had political upheaval. This recent election that we went through and are still going through to some degree. When I was on vacation, 
I, uh, I made a phone call to our internet provider because, you know, we had noticed that our, our internet bill had gone up and I actually had some time to call on that. So I decided to call on it on vacation. I know, kind of a weird thing to do on vacation, but it is what it is. Had time to do it, so I did. And I was on hold for a long time, and finally this guy picks up, and we begin to talk, and he's making small talk with me as he's pulling up my account, and it was election day. We were gone on vacation on election day, and kind of glad we were, actually. But anyway, so he's saying, so what are you thinking about the election? I said, well, we're just kind of all trying to wait and see what's going to happen here. And he said, yeah, I'm just so nervous and so anxious. And I said, I don't think there's any one of us who aren't nervous and anxious. I mean, it's crazy, right? And he said, yeah, it's so crazy. And he said, I just don't know how all this is going to work out. And I said, well, you know what? Honestly, regardless of how it works out, this isn't what's most important to me. And he said, well, what is most important to you? And I said, look, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter really who is in power because the one who truly is in power is the God of the universe. His name is Jesus. He's who I trust. He's who I love. He's who I follow. And he's got the big picture. And quite frankly, as anxious as I am, that only goes so far because I have built my life on following him and trusting him and knowing him. And there was this long pause. And that's basically what I said to the guy. And he said, you're absolutely right. He said, I've, I've been anxious, but I'm right there with you. And that's really good perspective. And we all desperately need God's perspective in this season that we find ourselves in. There are so many things that are clamoring for our time and our focus. And yes, for us to give our faith to, to make our foundation out of. And we continually have to remind ourselves about what we know to be true, that God is still in control. And yes, that, be, that can become, you know, a euphemism and just an empty, pithy statement, but it's a reality. And we need to constantly re-anchor ourselves to God's word and what God's word says and what God says. And remember that he is the source of our foundation and we need to constantly realign our faith and our trust in him. I know that we really haven't taken time to speak very comprehensively to the election and how we make sense out of all that and all the political upheaval that's going on in our culture. We've been choosing to do that through the course of this sermon, excuse me, this series that we're in and in the various sermons we're doing. But if you'd like to hear a really good, really timely, really practical sermon on how to make sure that we're putting our foundation, our faith in Jesus Christ in the midst of the election and the political upheaval and everything that's going on, I would commend to you and recommend to you this recent sermon from Bridgetown Church by my friend John Mark Comer. It's, the title of the sermon is A Pastoral Word on the Election and Politics. I would really encourage you to watch this at some point and to do it sometime soon. And one of the things I appreciate about John Mark's message is that he'll go back and reiterate much of what we've talked about and what Jesus has talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. But this is enormously practical. It's very focused and it's a timely, necessary word. And I hope that you'll get a chance to take this in. But let's get back to our story. We see a very important dynamic going on here with what saving faith is all about and what the centurion does. And that is responding to the work and the word of God. What does the centurion do? He takes Jesus at his word. As we read together, as the story goes, he goes home and finds that at the very moment Jesus said his servant would be healed, 
the servant was healed. Which again begs all sorts of questions. And this one is extremely practical and extremely necessary for us to wrestle with. So how much faith did the centurion really have? Or to make this even more focused, how much faith do you need to have for God to perform a miraculous healing? Well, let's talk about some of the extremes that are out there in response to that question. There's an extreme, there's a response to that question that says that, well, if God doesn't perform a healing, then you didn't have enough faith to be healed. Or to put that another way, if you have enough faith, God will heal. Or to put it another way, God's will is always to heal. Really? Many years ago, Jamie and I had a vending machine business. It was one of the many home businesses that we've had. And I was um, sales and service, and she was CEO, CFO, and stalker. And that's how we divided the responsibility. So I know something about vending machines. I had, and Jamie and I had a number of vending machines for a number of years. And this is what I know about vending machines in, is this. If you put enough money in, you will get what you want to come out of it. And those, those other perspectives that we just talked about on healing, that God's will is always to heal, that if God doesn't heal, then it's clearly because you don't have enough faith, or if you have enough faith, God will always heal. What those things do is they reduce God to being a vending machine, which he's not. But those basically say, if you put enough faith coins into the God machine, you're gonna get what you want out of it. Now, none of us would sign on to that and say, well, yeah, we believe that. Of course we don't believe that. But that's the presupposition behind those statements. So once again, it begs the question, how much faith does it take for God to perform a miraculous healing? How much faith did the centurion have? And I've been wrestling with this and I read on ahead in Matthew and I've read other, the other gospels of the healings that Jesus did. And I think the answer to that question is this, how much faith does it take for God to perform a miraculous healing? Well, enough faith to ask and enough faith to believe. That's the general pattern. As you look at the amazing, miraculous healings that Jesus did and that he still does. Now, there is and are some exceptions to that. I said that's the general pattern because if you go to the next story in this section, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law and she never asked. He just did it. Nothing in the passage says that his mother-in-law, who was sick, and we don't know how sick she was, but sick enough that she needed to be healed by Jesus, it never says she asked him to do that or that Peter asked him to do that. He just did it. God in his goodness sometimes heals without us even needing to ask. But at the end of the day, the general pattern that we see in God's word is that if you have enough faith to ask and you have enough faith to believe that God can heal, then you have enough faith. But it doesn't always come down to our faith. It ultimately comes down to God's will and God's plan. And God doesn't always heal, even though we ask him to. By way of example, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26, he pleaded If there is any other way besides the cross, God, please make another way. And God said, no, this is the way. And so Jesus trusted and obeyed. Or the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, three times he pleads with God to take away whatever that 
thing was that he needed to be healed of and God said no because my power is made perfect in weakness. Sometimes the miracle isn't in the healing. Sometimes the miracle is in the moment by moment, day by day perseverance to suffer and struggle and trust God anyway. Sometimes that's the miracle. But back to our story. It goes on to say this. Many will come from the east and the west. And I wonder if those who were listening to Jesus, the Jewish hearers, if their minds went back to passages like Psalm 103, verse 7, that talk about, excuse me, Psalm 107, verse 3, I got those inverted. Psalm 107, 3, that talks about and paints this picture of someday when God fully brings his kingdom, he will bring people from all parts of the world to be a part of it. That's what this east and west means is this is extending beyond the Jewish people and this is talking about all people who will believe and trust in Jesus Christ and be in right relationship with God through him, coming to this amazing feast. And again, that's a picture of Isaiah 26, or if we fast forward, that's a picture of Revelation 19, when Jesus comes back and there'll be this enormous feast and this enormous party. And by the way, no one throws a better party than God does. No one knows how to party more than God does. There'll be this incredible party, this incredible feast that lasts for literally a thousand years, many scholars believe, when he fully brings his kingdom and has come back. And that's what this is talking about. And this is miraculous because this is connecting so many Old Testament dots that God's heart has always been that all people would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth through right relationship with God, through knowing Jesus Christ. It's absolutely remarkable. But boy, is there a strong word here as well. Who are the subjects of the kingdom? The ethnic Jews. And in particular, He's describing here the ethnic Jews who will choose to reject Jesus as the Messiah and as their Savior. And so there's a very sobering word of judgment here. And the point here is this, that saving faith is about a personal relationship with God through right relationship with Jesus Christ. Which once again begs the question of you and me. Is he your God? Have you entered into relationship with him by responding to his great love for you by receiving him into your life? Because this is a strong word of judgment here. There is no other way that you could be saved from your brokenness and from this broken world. More education is not going to do it. The right political party, whoever that is, and the right person in power, whoever that is, is not going to do it. Trying harder is not going to do it. Having a good resume is not going to do it. Being a good person is not going to do that. All those things fall short of the complete inside-out change that can only happen by entering into right relationship with God through knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. My friends, entering God's kingdom is not about what you know. It is about who you know. So do you know him? Not just know about him, but know him as your Lord and Savior. Because my friends, the greatest miracle in this passage isn't the healing miracle of the centurion's servant. 
the greatest miracle is that we can all find complete healing through right relationship with Jesus Christ. Because someday, when Jesus comes back or when we leave this life and go to the next one with him, we will be completely healed. He is the only source of true and complete healing. And as we're thinking about this, this word of judgment here in this passage, we have to remember that when Jesus came, he didn't come to bring judgment. He came to bear judgment. That's what the cross and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus is all about. He bore our judgment so that we could have right relationship with God through knowing him and receiving him into our lives. In a passage full of miracles, the greatest miracle is true healing, salvation for all of us through right relationship with Jesus Christ. My friends, we are so profoundly grateful that God extended the life of my mother-in-law for 31 years. She was a 31-year walking miracle. And we had her till last year. And this year is the year of firsts. The first birthdays we've had without her. This will be the first Thanksgiving we've had without her. The first Christmas we're going to have without her. And in our grief and grieving and in our pain and in the difficulty that comes with that, we have this incredible hope, this incredible reality that the greatest miracle wasn't that God graciously gave us 31 more years with her. The greatest miracle is that she's now with him. We will see her again someday. And she is free from suffering and pain and is experiencing and has experienced complete healing. My friends, we don't have to wait till heaven to experience the healing power of God. You see, God wants to save you from your brokenness and your sinfulness this morning, now. And we want to give you the opportunity to respond to that. If this makes sense to you, if this feels like something you should do, that isn't just your cognitive reasoning that's kicking in, that is evidence of God's Holy Spirit, that God himself is working in your heart to bring you to the point where you are going to enter into right relationship with him now. And so I want to lead you in a prayer. We're just gonna talk to God together for you to be able to do that. So would all of you bow your heads with me wherever you are, wherever you're watching this from. If you're driving, okay, you can keep your eyes open and don't bow your head. God still hears your prayers, but would you pray with me? Lord, I pray for any of those who are watching this or listening and watching to this in the future who have not entered into that saving, right relationship with you, that they would choose to do so now. And they would do so by saying, Jesus, I believe you are who you say you are. I believe that you love me, that you forgive me, and that you want me to be in right relationship with you. So I receive you into my life now. And I choose to trust you with my life.
And it's in your name I pray. Amen. Now as our worship team comes and as we prepare to respond to this amazing passage and the work of God in our hearts this morning, there's one more time of prayer I'd like to lead us through. And that is, yes, I'd like to lead us through a time of healing prayer. You see, God does all kinds of healings. He does physical healing. He heals emotionally. He heals mentally. He heals holistically. And I would like to lead us in a prayer for healing for for all of us. And in particular, I'm thinking of people like Jay McKinney and Mary Lister and... um, and others, um, Ashley Young. I mean, it's just all these names come to mind of folks who are up against incredibly hard, difficult sicknesses and diseases and illness. And I want to ask God to perform a miraculous healing there. But I also want to ask for God to perform a miraculous healing in all of us. And so will you, once again, bow your head and close your eyes and join me in asking the God of the universe, the God who we choose to trust to do the miraculous. So Lord, we pray together for those who are struggling this morning with diseases and sicknesses in their body. God, we we, we think specifically of Jay McKinney and Ashley Young and Mary Lister and, and there are so many other names that I could name just within our church, but the most important thing is you know You know who needs your healing. You know who needs your intervention. So God, we come to you and ask, would you? Would you heal? With whatever that looks like, with whatever that means. And Lord, we we don't treat you as a vending machine who always does what we ask you to do. But Lord, we ask that you would do the miraculous. And whether that means a complete and total healing, a partial healing, whether that means perseverance and the ability to suffer while still choosing to trust you, we, we ask for a miracle this morning, a physical miracle, an emotional miracle, a mental miracle, a spiritual miracle. God, please do your work and help us to trust you as you do. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's pray and sing together that he would truly give us faith to trust and follow and obey him. What a gritty, determined, persevering commitment we just sang together to have faith and to trust in our God. Even when it's difficult, even when we don't get what we want. You see, faith isn't just a feeling. Faith is a choice. It's a decision we make moment by moment hour by hour, day by day, to trust in our God. But faith isn't something that you just experience and do alone. We discover God together in community. And you do not have to walk this faith journey alone. I'm sure just from the numbers, the sheer volume of those who will watch and listen to this, there are a number of you who long for healing in your life, who need prayer, And we want to journey with you in that. Right after we complete our time of of worship and time in the Word here today, 
we will have um, a Zoom graphic that will flash up with a QR code on your screen and that will take you directly to a, a, a Zoom prayer room where we have folks who would love to pray with you about anything, whether it's healing or, or whether it's something else in your life. We are available to you. We have um, that button at the bottom of our foot on our website for prayer. We, we love to respond to that. The elders, we love to pray with people. There's not very many meetings that we have that go by where we don't have someone we're praying with, either in person or virtually. So let us walk this journey of faith together. Because in the Old Testament, in the book of Habakkuk, it says this, the righteous will live by faith. And that's what we want to be about, putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Because you and I, we are the light of the world. And a city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl, but instead they put it on its stand where it can shine and give light to everyone in the room in the same way. Let your light shine before people that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. So now go and live by faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining us for Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church here in Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net.